0: I think, I think uh, I'm more excited right now than I was five minutes ago to preach this um, because it seems like God has our minds and our hearts in the same place that uh, this text was meant to come at this time for this moment uh, for us. Uh, now, having said that, I do want to say I, I need to qualify something. First of all, um, if, if you could, Keep your, your, your comments or interactions or anything that you might have to say till the end. Um, and I would be happy to talk with you then. Uh, it's an extremely controversial text uh, that we're going to be in t- today, even though I think more than a controversial text, we should know that this is a, a blessed, blessed text. This should be something that sends us out um, like literally like gliding out of here. Um, and so that's been my prayer all week is that um, no matter what backgrounds you guys have or what previous interpretation that you might have had, that you would be open to see uh, the the actual emphasis of this text, the intention of Paul in this text, which is to lift our spirits to the heavens, regardless of what we're going through. Uh, that's what we need to grab onto here and walk away with. Uh, many of you may disagree with my exposition of this, and that's okay. Again, we're open. We like talking about these things. So if you got any questions or um, you know, snarks, conundrums, all that good stuff, uh, just let me know afterward, and I, I would be more than happy to, uh, to talk with you. Um, but I believe that we're going to be blessed in this today. So open to First Thessalonians chapter 4, and we are just coming into this section of this epistle uh, that, that, that really leads to what we call uh, eschatology. And I don't know if you guys all know what that big word is. I think a lot of you do. Eschatology is just the study of last things, right? Theology, the study of God. Anthropology, the study of man. Veritology, the study of truth. Um, It it goes on and on. Eschatology, the study of last things. Um, And this, unfortunately, has become a dividing point, especially over the last few hundred years um, in a lot of churches. Um, and so, um, I know I'm going to be treading on some, I know I'm going to be treading on some sacred ground, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And I want you guys to know that this was sacred ground for me for a long time too. Um, I was, uh, brought up in a Bible church that had definite views of eschatology that were held very high. So if you were to go and you were to look at this, some of you might be able to guess who the what denomination this was, but if you were to go and look at their statement of faith, their essentials of what they believed, it would be like Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, virgin birth, resurrection from the dead, and then there'd be like pre-tribulation rapture right next to it. Like these all things were equal, and they're not equal. <laughs> those, are not, those are not all equal things. Um, and, but, but I was taught that from the church that I was in. And so I also valued it really high and held it with a closed hand, where nobody could come and challenge it and nobody could come and snatch it from me. This is what it is. And if you don't believe it, there's something wrong with you. And that's not true. Um, And so my prayer all week is that we would all uh, humbly come to this text and read it in a new and a fresh way. Because I don't know about you, but um, as a Bible student and someone who wants to remain a Bible student, the main characteristic of being a Bible student is that we're always searching for truth. We're not searching for preferences. We're not searching to, to preserve things that, that we were first taught just because we were first taught them. We're always in pursuit of the truth of God and what God has clearly said, not what he has obscurely said, which seems to go on a lot with eschatology. And so many of you have heard the word exposition, and we want to do a good exposition on our Bibles when we read our Bibles. Exposition means um, to expose. We want to expose and then extract that which is clearly talked about rather than read into or impose our own interpretation on what we're reading. Does that make sense? So we want to go this way with what we're reading in the Bible and make observations rather than go this way and read our own interpretation into the text which seems to be a very easy thing for all of us to do. And so what I'm going to attempt to do today is is actually make six observations with this text that we're going to read. We're going to be verse 13 through 18. Um, and before we read this, I just want to remind you real quick of what's going on here. Okay. Uh, so, so, uh why is Paul about to address this? He's moving into a new subject. And the subject, even though this is the section of Scripture, the only section of Scripture, where we actually have the word phrase rapture, this is where you get it, okay, is here. That's really not what he's, what his point is. He's not here to talk about a rapture, and what it looks like, or or necessarily even when it happens, okay? He's actually uh, uh, addressing a question that they would have had. So, So Paul came to Thessalonica on a second missionary journey. He was only there a matter of weeks, like we talked about, and I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that if you only have a matter of weeks to teach new believers things, like there's a lot of things that are going to be left out. There's a lot of things that you won't have time to unpack and to unfold and to teach them. You can't uh, hardly teach them all the mysteries concerning the, the Christian faith. But part of what Paul most likely did talk about while he was there in the short time that he was there was the fact that Jesus was going to return. I mean, that's a major doctrine of the church. If you want to have a good eschatology that builds up and strengthens the church, and encourages you, that's it. Jesus is coming back for his church. Plain and simple. And so uh, it, it's, it's pretty, um, I'm pretty confident that Paul would have talked about this with them. Uh, and, and yet it seems that uh, from what he's about to clarify here, that they had some misunderstandings or some questions concerning the things that surround the return of Jesus, like what about those who have died in the meantime? prior to his return. That's really what the subject is of this section. It's not a rapture, even though we find the rapture there. It's, it's really him addressing what's happened to the believers who have died prior to Jesus' coming back. This is their question. So they're, they're thinking things like, are they going to miss out on the second coming? You know what I mean? Uh, are they going to be disembodied spirits for all eternity? Because that's what we're also taught in the Bible happens pre Jesus's return to believers that die, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? Um, are they just second-class citizens in heaven because they're going to miss this event, you know? Uh, what, what, what about them in relation to us concerning the return of Christ? And so we have Paul's answer here, basically, his clarification as to how it's going to go down. And we're going to, we're, again, we're going to move through this section by making six observations. I believe uh, we're going to call them can no's because we're going to actually just expose, we're just going to extract these observations from the text. We're not going to read into anything, all right? So verse uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, Christie, This is what I heard when you shared. And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up, raptured. There it is. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, encourage one another with these words. Number one of six points. You ready? If you want to write these down, cool. If you don't and you want to go back and reference it, um, this is all caught on stream and it'll be on the website later. You can go back and hear it. Number one, do not be ignorant of last things. Do not be ignorant in your eschatology. All right. We find that in verse 13. The subject that he's about to walk into is one that he does not want us to be ignorant of, which means to be uninformed or to be untaught. And if it's uh, uninformed, then it can also be to be misinformed, to believe something that's maybe not true about the subject, okay? So we're getting clarity here from him. Paul doesn't want us to be untaught or uninformed or misinformed when it comes to the coming of the Lord. He wants us to know and to understand how this is going to go down. In other words, eschatology matters. It's not unimportant. It's beneficial. Okay? And this is where we need to um, put this in its proper place. Because even though it's important and it's beneficial, um, churches, denominations, Christians, seem to do one of two things with eschatology. Um, they, They tend to put it at two different extremes of the spectrum. So one is that it's so mysterious. There's so many questions and it's so divisive. Why even talk about it? Why even pay attention to it? Why even have anything to do with it? I've been in one of these churches too, where they just flat out ignored anything that had to do with the, the surrounding of Jesus coming back because it, you know, there's so many unknowns, right? But Paul, Paul's actually rebuking that. He's saying, no, that's, that's not what you do with eschatology. You, you, you look at it, and you embrace that which we can know about it, and you talk about it. It matters. You meditate on it, right? And so we have this extreme where, like, you just put it off altogether, and you don't look at it. And then we have this other extreme, like I talked about earlier, the other church I was in, where it's everything, and where it is something to divide over, and where we can emphatically say somebody's right and somebody's wrong, right, which breaks fellowship, Okay. And so uh, Paul's not in any way encouraging that, okay? But he is saying that eschatology is important. It's important for you and I. We have a responsibility to observe and know that which has been clearly taught in Scripture concerning concerning the return. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. Are we good with that? So so uh, number one, um do not be ignorant of last things, or do not be ignorant in your eschatology. You can even put it that way, okay? Uh, Which brings us to number two, why not be ignorant? Why is it important that we're not ignorant? Number two, a good eschatology gives us hope now. A good eschatology gives us hope now. This is verse 13 as well. It's super clear what he's saying there. The understanding of our Lord's return gives us, reminds us of, fills us with hope now. Earlier this week was challenging for me. And I'm not talking about like things outside of me falling apart in my life. I'm talking about things inside of me. I was just in, a, in, a, in one of those places this week where I was really irritable and discouraged and negative on the inside, in my thoughts about everything around me, where it seemed like everything in the world was just leaving me unimpressed. And I hate when I get that way because uh, I know that I, I should be in a state of, of believing all things and hoping all things and, and thinking upon the things that are, that are good and true and perfect. And I wasn't there. Like All that was gone, and I was at this moment of like, just wanting to give the world the finger because of just where I was inside And it's just, the way he does things. This is the text I find myself in, right? And so I'm going back to this. And and it's funny because it's not that that, that, um, I did something to change something inside of me or that anything outside of me changed, but just the thought, the focus, taking my focus off of me and now and putting it on what will be changed everything. It was the cure. It was the medicine. That's why eschatology matters to you and I as it gives us a hope now it allows you and I to go through things that seem impossible for people to go through and come out the other side with peace and with joy even those things going on in horrible circumstances that make no sense to possess we can possess them simply by fixing our eyes on what it is that Christ is going to be bringing and doing with us when he comes Everything that affects us right now, everything that discourages us right now, everything that crashes our party right now will not always be like this. It will be changed, and we will be changed. Everything will be purged by Christ coming and collecting and gathering everything that he owns to himself and then glorifying it once for all. That thought, brothers and sisters, can carry you through anything just like Psalm 48 through anything to know what it is that he has planned and to be certain that he's going to perform every bit of it do you have that kind of faith do you have that kind of hope Paul's saying do not be ignorant of looking ahead because it is going to affect you bless you now if you do so we need to to live in this this state of of considering, of focusing on the fact that our Lord is coming back to do some stuff, to change some stuff. A good eschatology gives us hope now. um, Wow, I totally lost it now. (laughs) Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of the bodily resurrection, if it's not real, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Then there isn't any reason to go through what we go through and do what we do. You might as well throw in the towel when you get discouraged. You might as well throw in the towel when you get negative. But he goes on to say, because Christ did raise, right, the resurrection of the dead is true. We have every reason to rejoice in what's next for those who have died, specifically In the faith, not grieving as others do who have no hope. He says that here in 13. What does it do to not be ignorant, to have this eschatology of looking and fixing our eyes on the Lord who is to come? It it causes us to not get buried right now in our emotions when everything's telling us you should be buried in this, right? It does not say, I want you to notice, we do not grieve. You and I grieve, you and I feel. We love. Jesus wept when he lost his buddy. In, in fact, not only did he weep, he knew what he came there to do, which was to bring him back to life and to raise him. And he still wept because death stinks, right? So, so it doesn't say do not grieve. It says do not grieve as others do who have no hope. That's a difference. So, so really, it's, it's really to despair over that. As if there's nothing good at all that's going to come out of it. Earlier this week, I got a call from my dad. I didn't get it right away. And so, like, I got his message afterward. And his message just said that my my cousin, Jean, who's in, she was a sweet, sweet old gal that lived in Chicago, had passed away suddenly from a heart attack. All right? And I could tell that even he was having a hard time talking because he thought he was very fond of of this lady and me and Carrie got to go back a few years ago and stay in their home in, um, in Chicago with them. And she was just a a woman that just loved the Lord. She was just incredible to be around. Um, you just sensed, um, the goodness of God coming off of her whenever you were in her presence and she passed. And so I called back, uh, and, and to talk to my dad and he handed the phone to my mom and they were in the middle of Sherry's like having lunch. Right. And my mom starts weeping on the phone. Telling me about this because my mom and her had a, an affinity for each. They were just. Um, my mom just loved this lady. She meant so much to my mom, and my mom is weeping uncontrollably in the middle of Sherry's on this phone. And I said, "Mom, can I can I read you something real quick?" And she calms down and turn, you know turns up her um, her hearing aid and uh, you know tries to gather herself and calm down. And she says, "Okay." And um, I read her verse thirteen. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And she has this, this, this cry that's going on that is despair um, and, and um, just so heavy and so weighty changes to a different cry. It was the, one of the weirdest things. It goes from this kind of cry to a different cry, and she just starts saying, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Like the light went on again. Like she needed to know, oh my gosh, there's, this isn't it. There's, some, there's something more. And, and, and that cry goes from a cry of despair to a cry of joy and hope in the reality that she's going to see Jean again. She's going to see this lady again. Right? But, it, but under much better circumstances. That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about here. It changes everything with how we look at those that we have lost. And we've all lost people. We've we've all lost people that are extremely dear to us. But Paul wants us to know that if the Bible is true and God makes good on the promises that he's made, you will be with them again. You will be with them again. This is why the gospel matters so much. This is why we need to get the gospel to the people that we love. We need to get Jesus to them. All right? Um, Paul Paul uses the descriptive here in verse 13 um, that they're asleep, those who are asleep. You catch that there? Fallen asleep. Doesn't sound so bad, does it, when you you look at it that way, that they have fallen asleep. The early Christians had adopted a word for the burying places of their loved ones, and that Greek word was koimiterion, koimeterion. Right? which means a rest house for strangers or a sleeping place. It's the same word from which we get our English word, cemetery. Right? This word was used in that day for inns, or what you and I would call a hotel. Right? A Hilton or a Ramada or a Holiday Inn are places where you and I go to sleep. We go to sleep, right? Spend the night. We go to a hotel when we're on a trip or we're on a journey to sleep, and then we expect to get up the next day and continue on our journey. That's what we do. This is how the early Christians pictured this place where they buried their believing loved ones as an inn or as a hotel for the body, believing and knowing that at some point that body would get up again and have life again. It's pretty interesting to think about. And because of this belief, they did not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, number two, a good eschatology gives us hope now. Okay? Number three, the resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection. The resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection. This is verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection, past, present, and future. It doesn't matter whether you died pre-Jesus or post-Jesus. Okay? Or whether, uh, actually, post-Jesus doesn't, yeah, post-Jesus, his first coming. I almost confused myself right there. Like, what what kind of a doctrine is that? Yeah, that's real. So the first coming, it doesn't matter if you you died in the faith before Jesus came in the flesh or after, or whether you die pre-return, second coming, or live right up to it. The hope of the resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection. Also, (coughs) I want you to note, that the hope of this resurrection, this happy ending, is, is not for those who try harder to be better. This is key. We are always going to talk about this anywhere that we find it in the Bible because our flesh is always going to try to convince us that we need to be something good enough for God to receive us and uh, to, to, to bless us. And it's not true. This happy ending of a bodily resurrection is not for those who try harder to be better. It's not for those who lived a good life as a good person. The hope and the promise of a glorified body in the presence of Jesus is by a faith that is fully convinced that Jesus died and rose again. For since we believe, he says in 14. That's the qualifier, that's the entry point, the point of entry to this event, to participation in this event is belief, it is faith. right? So those who can look forward to this and who get to participate in this, get to do so based upon faith, not works, not ethnicity, not religiosity, not association, grandma was a Christian, Mom and dad were a Christian. Not church attendance. Not being a registered conservative. Not feeding the poor or the hungry or even volunteering in a warming shelter. That's not what gets you the blessing of participating in the bodily resurrection. It's by faith. We will rise to our Lord in the end through faith. And it is these who have it, those who have it... uh, are those who will, he will bring with him when he returns to change and collect all things to himself. As simply as I can put it, here's why you and I have hope and will participate in the resurrection of the body. Because we know someone who went into the grave and came back out. That's why you and I will participate in a bodily resurrection. We know the one who went into the grave and came back out. Better yet, better yet, We are known by the one and loved by the one who went into the grave and came back out. That's why you and I, if we go into the grave, if he should wait to come back, are going to come back out. If he is for us, who can be against us? He wins. If you don't know your Bible well, Jesus wins. God wins. God wins. That doesn't mean that that there's going to be anything that he wished he could have done Or somebody that he wished he could have had that he doesn't have. God is going to perform and make certain that all that he's determined to do, he does it with. And you and I, I have no idea why we're included in that. I have no idea why he loves me. But I know that he does. And I know that because he does, he's going to make sure that the same thing happens to my body that happened to his it's going to come out of the grave. It's going to come out of the grave. Number three, the resurrection is for all who believe in the resurrection. If you read something like Hebrews chapter 11, like the whole chapter, you will see that this goes all the way back to the beginning. We're talking about people that have always existed throughout history. Hebrews 11 is, we call it or refer to it often as the hall of faith, Right? And where does it start? It doesn't start with the disciples. It doesn't start with those who were alive when Jesus came, died, resurrected. It starts with Abel. Abel. To Enoch. To Noah. To Abraham. All those who looked forward to a hope of something that transcended this sinful world. Right? Number four. Those who are alive when Jesus returns, this is where it's going to get a little sticky, all right? So just hang in there with me. Might challenge a few people. Those who are alive when Jesus returns will not be the first to be with him bodily. I don't know how I ever missed this. I don't know how I ever missed this with the eschatology that I was taught in the actual place that the rapture is found in, in scripture. There's really clear sequence that we're going to see here from Paul, okay? Listen to his eschatology. Those who are alive when Jesus returns will not be the first to be with him bodily. And what does a pre-tribulation pre-tribu- rapture view do with your body? It means that those who are alive are bodily caught up. We vanish. So we're bodily with Jesus. Paul's saying not until this other resurrection happens first, okay? Just hear me out. You can go home, pray over these things. Like I said, I'm not not about to share what I'm sharing with you because it's what I've always believed, and I'm confident that I'm right and you're wrong. I actually used to buy a whole different eschatology, okay? And, And this is just a result of me trying to just, again, trying to know what God actually says rather than read between the lines and figure out things that he hasn't. This is verses 15 and 16 where we're getting this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, so those who are on earth, believers on the church, will not proceed, will not come before those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, will rise, what? First. First. The rapture of the existing church, or those who are alive on earth when Jesus comes back, does not come before or precede the bodily resurrection of the dead, the sleeping. The sleeping. In other words, the movies lied to us. The book series lied to us sounds very American. If what Paul is saying is true, and I believe it's more true than what you and I could come up with, this is the word of God through Paul. Non-believers living at the time of the rapture, Jesus's return will not experience a sudden vanishing of the church, but will first experience like a George Romero type film where graves open up and the dead come out no longer dead. This is what we see here. The dead are coming out bodily, no longer dead. That'll get your attention if you dwell on the earth during that time. (laughs) That's something to make your eyes open wide, isn't it? The aha moment is not what happened to grandma. She disappeared. The aha moment is what happened to grandma. She's been dead for 20 years. And there she is alive. It's a big difference. The aha moment is that the people that were dead are no longer dead, but changed, ascending into the clouds to be with Jesus. And this is what challenged me, really, when I started looking at this. I I have one um, maybe helpful tool for you guys. When you go in to look at your eschatology, um, and and this is one that that really made a huge difference for me in the way that I was cutting it all up and separating it, Uh, one that really brings it all together and makes it clear is to do one simple word search or phrase search. Okay, The day of the Lord. Do that search. Go to wherever it talks about in the Bible, the day of the Lord, and write down your observations, the characteristics of what's being said, and we start to see that it's extremely cohesive, not fragmented. It, it, so it, the, the 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 Greek word is the parousia or the parousia, however you want to, um, you know, emphasize your syllables. Um, the parousia, the day of the Lord, and it really starts to just put everything together in a very uh, clear way. Um, if you don't do that, then you start going to places that that um, that that give you, um, you can't get away from it, two comings, two raptures, two last trumpets, so I'm not sure which one's last, two bodily resurrections. It starts to fragment and and tear apart everything otherwise. Um, According to a pre-tribulation rapture view, there's a lot of death that occurs after the rapture. In fact, that's the whole reason we need the rapture, right? It's because things are about to get really bad for the church. And there's a lot of death. We see it in the book of Revelation where John's like looking at the throne room. and He's like, who are all these people? Like, uh, in And a number he cannot count or calculate before the throne of God. Like, who are these? And the angel of the Lord was like, these are those who have come out of the tribulation. Like, there's a lot of death that's going to go on after the pre-tribulation rapture, right? So that's really difficult. Listen listen to this. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15:50. According to Paul here, I'm going to read this. According to Paul, the bo- at the bodily resurrection is when it's fulfilled that death is done. That there is no more death after the bodily resurrection. He says this, I tell you this brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Same thing that he's telling us here in, first, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Some of us are going to be alive at the return. But we shall all be what? Changed. changed. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How, how, how fast is the twinkling of an eye? Is, it, is that like just to blink? No, it's faster. It's how fast it takes the light to move across your pupil. Like you and I can't even fathom how quick that is, right? at the last trumpet he says so we got another trumpet for the trumpet which one the last one shall sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we then shall be changed it's the same thing he's saying in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Christ coming at that trumpet Starts with a bodily resurrection of the dead saints and finishes with the changing of the life saints. It's all one event. It's one event. He goes on there in 1 Corinthians to say this when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. You ready? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? When the bodily resurrection happens and the rapture happens of those who are alive, death is done. It's done. There's not another seven years or another three and a half years, according to Paul, of death. It's done. He's coming to collect and change his complete bride, his full bride. When this happens, the bodily resurrection happens, and this is what I want you to grab, death is over. Satan is over, sin is over, the game is over. The gig is up and it's won. God will have won. If this is true, if Paul is correct, then the rapture is the catching up of the saints, first dead, then alive, which is the end of death for all. Okay. So number four, those who are alive when Jesus returns will not be the first to be with him bodily the dead in Christ will be. Number five, the rapture does not necessarily catch the church up to heaven, but to meet Jesus in the air, to meet Jesus in the air. These are not the same thing. These are different things. It has been argued by many proponents, by the way, this is verse 17, where we have the word uh, where we get the, the, the phrase caught up, which is where we get the word rapture. It's actually harpazo in the Greek, harpazo in the Greek, which is, uh, just gives the idea of a violent, uh, forceful snatching away, right? And we're gonna need it. Like if we're gonna bodily raise, ascend into the clouds to meet Jesus, then we're gonna need his help. Like it's gonna, be, it's gonna need to be something that, that he does, you know, with a lot of force. It's not something we're capable of doing. So that's where we have it. But it has been argued by many proponents of a pre-tribulation rapture that, that logically it is just silliness to think that Jesus comes to catch up his church just to come back down, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that. I think I used to say that to people. Like, that's ridiculous. He's going to come and catch us up just to come back down. Like, that's stupid. That doesn't even make any sense. And my question is why? You know, why is it stupid? Um, the language that we actually have here would indicate, and that's the language uh, to meet, those two words there, to meet, would indicate that this is the case. Uh, to meet in the Greek is eis apentesis, apentesis, which means for a meeting. Now, it's interesting to note that the word apentesis is only used two other times in the New Testament in this exact same form. Okay, one is Matthew 25, one is Acts 28. You can go there real quick with me if you want, or just listen, okay? And I'm going to read those real quick to you. The first place we see it is Matthew 25, to meet appentesis. if I can get there faster. And it's found in this passage. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took, not, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom come out to Apentesis to meet him, to have a meeting With him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They go out and they meet him. And then what do they do? They go in together, right? They go back in to where the celebration is held. The second one is in Acts chapter 28, the very end of the book of Acts, where it says this 14 and 15. It says, There we found brothers. And we're invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three, ta- three taverns to meet us. There it is right there, to have a meeting. And so what you have there are uh, uh, they're traveling uh, to this place uh, to meet these brothers. And when the brothers hear that they got close, they come out. To meet them and then they all go back together and that's my question is what do these two places have in common what do these two verses have in common they have in common the fact that this meeting was for for where one party comes out to meet the other party just to go back into where they were with that party that's what we see in both of these uses so um it's a going out in a sense to just come back in. It's not an unusual thing. It's not a silly thing. In fact, me and Carrie moved up here when we were super young, brand new, married, uh, knew knew nobody, moved from all of our families, and we only got to see um, my parents like once a year, and it would be because my parents would come up from Southern California, right? And, of course, we loved them, and we missed them, and we couldn't wait for them to get there, right? And so when they would come up and they would arrive once a year, we'd be ready, We'd be watching out the window. We would be ready. And when they would pull up, we would not sit in our house and wait for them to come to the door. We would go out to their car. We would meet them where they pulled up. They probably help appreciate the help with the luggage. They, they, they just wanted our help with the luggage. It was too much, right? No, we do that because that's what we do when we anticipate highly the arrival of somebody that we love and that we're expecting. We go out to meet them. And then we all come back in together. It's not something that's silly. It's something that's a result of love and excitement and celebration, not silliness. And it, and it seems that it will be the same thing. What, who, who better do we have to run out to meet than Christ, the one that you and I have been waiting for for so long? When he appears, we are not going to sit in our home. We are not going to sit in this building if he came right now. We are running to him. We are running to meet him. And this is what we see here. It's the same thing we see with the father of the prodigal, right? He sees his son coming afar off, down the path. And he's so excited that he cannot contain himself. His love cannot be contained. So he runs to meet him and he embraces him only for them to walk back together into their home. And this is what we're seeing here in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're seeing a gathering together, an appentasis of the church to meet him in the air and to forever be with him. Number six, finally. Eschatology exists. I'm actually going to say this eschatology exists to be an encouragement to the church, verse 18. It exists not to break us apart and divide us. It exists to encourage us. What's the goal of eschatology? What should biblical eschatology produce? It's not there for us to argue who has a better one or a more intellectual one or a more preferable one or a more complicated one, right? It's there for, not there for us to divide and separate and fragment the church over, to create separate denominations over. It exists for us to encourage each other, to build each other up, to edify the church as a whole. I want us to notice Paul's words here because he does not say in verse 18, terrify one another with these words. Have you ever met those Christians? I have. I used to be one. Like I, I thought I knew just enough I thought I did just enough decoding and, like, figuring out of end-time things that I, I would run around and literally, like, terrify people with them. Dangerous. Were you one of those guys in the street corner carrying the sign saying the end is near? No, I wasn't that guy. I'm too prideful <laughs> for that. We don't terrify each other with our eschatology. Oh, here's the new world. Here's the new world order. It's happening. Load your shotgun, Right. Dig a bunker. No. That's not the church's response. Oh, the mark of the beast is this, or it's that. Be afraid. Make sure you don't take it. God's going to make sure that you don't take it if you're his. Like, we don't run around and terrify each other with our eschatology. He says, encourage each other. Build up each other, right? Establish one another with these words. Because we who believe have a great hope. So be encouraged in that great hope. Be encouraged, because the glorification of our bodies in the presence of the Lord is the blessed hope of the church, right? Again, God wins, and he's coming back to collect and to glorify all of those who he's won. That's a great comfort. That's super encouraging, right? If I'm really to boil this down, this rapture text for us today, there's one thing I want us each to grab onto and what Paul proclaims here, with our eschatology, it's this. Our blessed hope is not found in escaping hard times. Our blessed hope is found in his appearing to change all things once for all. Those are two different things. They're two different focal points in eschatology. This is the focal point of a historic Christian eschatology. It's not escapism through the solving of riddles that we're not able to solve, but on his ability to save to the utmost those who's determined to save. And I stand on this. I stand on this now, not, not because it's popular or because I prefer it over pre-tribulation rescue because that one definitely is the best option we have when you look at all the views. Like, that one's rad. I want to bail hard times. Like, I, I'm down with that. I like that one right but 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 i believe this because when i read my bible plainly and just gather the information there this is what i see over and over again so go ahead and send your emails verses objections to pastor david at the door 3r.org <laughs> be nice be nice we all love each other here right well here here's my challenge is 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 in love for for you all for for what it is that god's got going on here and what Why he has us all together is that that we just humbly put aside our presuppositions. Look, we all have to face at times. I think a lot of you have have lived long enough. There's just times that we walk through life, believing things that we just found out later were just a little different. And it's not an easy thing to do. You know, what's even harder about this for me is I was in a church where um, eschatology used to be my specialty. And so I was the guy that would teach... The classes over and over again. When it was the book of Revelation, they had me teaching it over and over again to the church. I was that guy teaching what turns out to be a wrong eschatology the whole time. And it was really hard for me um, to recant and to admit, gosh, maybe I, I, you know, led some people astray. It happens. But my, my, my prayer is that we would all just carefully consider what Paul's saying in this text, because God does not want us to be ignorant, verse 13, concerning such things. He doesn't want us to misunderstand. Our eschatological view should be one that encourages us when we think on it, not one that breeds fear and question and division and skepticism and worry. There's, there's nothing that like troubles me more, and I know I've shared this before, in the day and the age that we're living in, than to see Christians be so caught up, no pun intended, in the world's current events and politics, right? And, and, and it doesn't mean that we don't have a, a, an opinion on those things or that God wouldn't want us to ha- uh, speak into those things uh, because he has left us here. We can, we, we, we can do that, but I found that people that are, that are consistently caught up in the current events of the world and the politics of the world have the same thing in common almost every time, which is a negativity about them. And Christians shouldn't have that. We shouldn't be living with that kind of a negativity. Right? I I don't remember seeing negativity on the list of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Like, it's not there. It's not something that God's producing in us when we see it coming out of us. It's something else. The Christian sleeps on the boat. Remember this. Jesus taught us this. The Christian sleeps on the boat. When the storm rages... And everyone else is running around like a bunch of cuckoo birds going, the sky is falling. Jesus is sleeping. And the reason he's sleeping is because he has complete confidence in the one who is over the storm. You and I are going to see a lot of things. We have seen a lot of things in the last few years. We're going to continue to see things get nastier and more godless and everything else as it goes on. Keep your eyes on the end of the story. Don't get caught up on the things that are getting us to the end. God's the God over both things. Lord, thank you so much that you give us a clear, knowable, and encouraging eschatology in our Bibles. I pray that we would take it to heart every day, that, that one of the regular things that we practice, each of us in our lives as Christians every day, is staring at the last day and how glorious it's going to be. So we thank you for this, God. We thank you again that your truth, letters like this to a real church a couple thousand years ago in Thessalonica have been preserved to speak to us clearly and to benefit us fully today. And so we just praise your name, even though it was bare this morning, as far as music and even bodies, What a a privilege, God, that you have given us to come together as a people of God. To just stare into your face and, and, and to just, again, absorb just the greatness of who you are. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your grace, which is new every day. We thank you for a hope that goes beyond all the devastation of this world right now. Because of what you've done in Christ. It's in his name we pray,